My kids recently discovered this show called Planet Earth, which I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of like a nature show. And um, I want to say our kids are sheltered, but like there are things they see, things they don't see. And so the other day I walk in and my wife's on the couch with both of my kids. And I walk in to see this killer whale nail this penguin and hit it so hard it like flips up out of the water and the other killer whale just grabs it and it's gone. It destroyed death. And my kids are like, and I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. And they go, yeah, they're awesome. They're so excited. They think it's amazing. For me, it's a little bit weird because in our environment, um, normally there's things that we, we see and we do, but it's generally pretty, pretty clean. We're not super uh, near to death and destruction. Um, I have never killed an animal and then eaten it, but I eat dead animal all the time, right? And most of us are the same way. Like we don't actually go behind the scenes and see what happens in order for them to provide us with chicken. I just go to the store. It's all prepackaged. I don't end up dealing with death. It's not physical. In fact, it bothers me in some sense um, to touch dead animals. Second story is maybe too much, but... Once, when my daughter was very young, um, we walked into the kitchen, and she's chewing on something, and we've been preparing breakfast, or not not breakfast, dinner, and my wife says, what is she eating? And I say, I don't know, and she picks her up and uh, pulls out a chunk of uncooked chicken. Our immediate reaction to that, as was mine, was, that is disgusting, back up. That's gross for so many levels, not just the physical possibility of what might happen to her sickness-wise, but something about raw, uncooked chicken just bothers us, right? We're not exactly sure why. So that said, why am I talking about weird stuff? Because of this, in this passage, Jesus is going to do something that in that day and age would have made everybody around him feel incredibly strange. It was incredibly tactile and physical and material, and it bothered everyone. No one left the scene of what was happening today in this passage unmoved. It was unusual. It was absolutely incredible, but it was very, very unusual. So as we go into this morning, I want to ask you to enter in. Imagine you are back in this day and age. Imagine you are seeing the world through the eyes of this guy named Mark who wrote a thing called a gospel, which is the story of what Jesus came to do and asks, and to some extent answers the question, who is this? And so we're going to get a partial answer to that this morning. So I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter one, and I'm going to start reading in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. So leprosy is not something in today's world that we are super familiar with, but um, what we found out is in the ancient world, it was probably one of the most feared diseases you could get, right? And in this, in this setting, leper, uh, leprosy could mean any kind of skin disease, um, and not just normal skin diseases like, you know, I've got some flaky skin or something. But it generally was a sign from your skin that there was something wrong internally, right? So when you had a skin disease and stuff began going weird with your skin, if it began flaking, if it began being um, just kind of gross, people generally said, hey, this is a reflection of something that's going on internally. Oftentimes it was a reflection of a disease that we now called Hansen's disease. And what Hansen's disease is is it's bacteria 
I'm not sure, bacteria, virus, something gets under literally your skin. And it begins to attack your immune system. And so externally, it begins to present itself as little symbols, little literally scales on your skin. And so your skin begins looking scaly. But deep down under, it begins attacking your nervous system. And you begin to lose feeling all over your body. And especially in the extremities, so much so that the nerves in your fingers and your toes begin to die and disappear. And your body recognizes this, that this happens. And it literally, it begins to reabsorb your fingers and your toes, the calcium disappears, the cartilage, cartilage disappears, and your, your hands become deformed, your nose becomes, your ears, all of your body parts begin to deform. In that day and age, they would call it walking death. This is the closest thing we can imagine, almost as if you've seen the show Walking Dead. It's people walking around, alive, but internally there is something so horrifically wrong with them that your immediate reaction is to get away and run away, as was theirs. In fact, in the Jewish Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, there literally was a prohibition. If this was you, you were not just told to stay away, hey, you're under quarantine, but literally you had to run around, cover your mouth, and yell unclean. You had to wear torn clothes. You had to show and tell the world, stay away. And the way this became, uh, I don't want to say interpreted, but used in the New Testament times was that you were not allowed to be in social situations where you were in proximity with another person. So you were required, according to certain sections of the Jewish law, we think this was somewhat normal, to stay 50 paces away from other people. That's as close as you could get to normal societies, 50 paces. So say 50 feet. And you were, you were required to live alone, separated. So people could not come near you because they feared, rightly so, infection. This is not a disease they knew how to to treat. All they knew was you got sick and it just got worse and worse and worse. And the worst part of it was, this is kind of strange for us to understand, you didn't die. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse until finally after many years, um, you died. It was incredible misery. Into this situation, a guy comes to Jesus. We don't know a ton about him, except we know he's been excluded from society. He's not allowed to come near anyone. He's an outcast. He is in danger. Get this. If you came closer than 50 paces, people were allowed to do stuff like throw rocks at you with the intention of killing you. This is a serious deal. If you, as a leper, draw near to other people, they are allowed to chuck stones at you until you die. Pretty serious stuff. Notice what this guy does. The leper who's suffering all these horrific things, he came to Jesus. So there's, Mark implies this. This guy knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows he's not supposed to approach, but Mark's telling us he approaches Jesus. He's coming close and he kneels down before him, and he implores him. The word there is he is begging him. It's, um, it's a term for drawing your, I am, I'm imploring you. I'm begging you. I, I desperately need you to do something. And notice what he says. He's kneeling before him. He's as humble as he can get. Notice what he says. If you will, you can make me, get the word here, clean. This is what he says. 
All it takes is you saying yes. All it takes is your desire. I know you're capable. We're not, that's not a question. I've heard stories. I know what's going on. I'm so desperate that I know all that has to happen is you just desire it. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, heal me. That's what we kind of expect because we tend to look at something like Hansen's disease or any disease as something that needs to be healed. But in this context, it's far more serious. He doesn't just need to be healed. He needs to be made clean. In that day and age, when you had some sort of skin disease, especially something like Hansen's, it wasn't just socially known that you stay away from that. They were, by the religious society and by the government, you were declared unclean, unfit for social interaction, unfit for corporate worship, unfit to be around anybody. You had to live outside the city. You could not engage. So this guy's asking not just that he be healed, but that he be declared clean. And it kind of tells you something about this guy. He doesn't just want to be made well. He wants to be brought in, restored, able to engage in society, able to be brought back in. And he begs Jesus, if you want, all it takes is desire, you can make me clean. Verse 41, notice what it says. Moved with pity. So the idea is Jesus sees him and he feels something incredibly deeply. He has an emotion, a deep emotion, an emotion that's so strong that he is moved to act by it. And you kind of expect him to say, yeah, dude, I want to be clean. So if you skip to the end of the verse, notice what he says, moved with pity. He said to him, I will be clean. So get the end. He does want to heal him. But Notice what happens in the middle. And this is just crazy, and this shows you what's amazing about Jesus. He doesn't have to do this. There's no need. It's completely above and beyond. It's completely unexpected. Moved with pity, he doesn't say, I will be clean, until he does this. And Mark's very explicit. He stretches out his hand, and he touched him. It's pretty cool. He reaches out. And he touches this guy. Now, anybody who came close to a leper was considered unclean. So there's all these crazy Jewish laws about, well, not crazy then, they're crazy to us, that if you stood under the same tree with a guy who was a leper, you were now unclean, meaning you were excluded for society for a certain amount of time. Why? Because they were terrified of this infection spreading. It was bad news. Everybody in society, when they see a leper coming, what do they do? They, they run away and they scream, get away from me, dude. I got a rock and I know how to use it, right? And Jesus does something absolutely amazing. He doesn't back up. He doesn't run away. In this guy's brokenness and his exclusion and in his sickness and in his uncleanness, he reaches out and he touches him. And it's beautiful. And by all societal laws, Jesus should be at that point rendered unclean and unfit for society. And instead, something else happens. He says, I will be clean. Verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him. So get that, he's immediately healed. Everything that's sick about him is gone. And he was made clean. So get what Mark is trying to show us. This guy who shows up 
who last week we saw is blowing everybody's minds, who's doing something radically, who's declaring the kingdom of God has come right here and now. I am heralding it, I am bringing it, I am announcing it, and I am embodying it. Touches this man, and something incredible happens, right? We're all pretty aware of how infection works, how contagion works. Every year, usually happens sometime between February and March, I blame it on them, it may not be their fault. My children, I blame it on them, bring home some form of stomach flu. It just happens. It's horrific, right? Everybody knows we, we have like living sections of our house that get quarantined. My wife sends me up to the third floor. You can sleep on the floor. Just stay away from us when you get it. And the most terrifying thing is when one of your kids gets it, if you're a parent, you know this, everybody else knows it's just a matter of time, right? It's like waiting on an execution. You know it's coming and you know you're going to get sick and you just try to survive because it's infectious. They didn't understand then how all the germ stuff worked. They didn't have the science, the empirical things. They didn't have microscopes to see, but guess what? They understood. These were not stupid people. They knew how infection worked. They got it. They were incredibly intelligent people. They understood And the amazing thing Mark wants to show us this morning is that it works in reverse for Jesus. Instead of being infected by this man when he reaches out and touches, instead Jesus' healing, his rightness, his full healed humanity, everything about humanity restored flows back into this guy. And instead of infecting Jesus, this guy gets infected by Jesus' cleanness and he is declared completely clean. That's amazing. Verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. That's an interesting thing. What do you expect Jesus to say? Notice the word stern. The idea is Jesus essentially stomped and said, whoa, I'm giving you a command, follow it. I'm being stern. Like we all know what stern is, right? It's the way our parents talked to us when we were about to do something really stupid, right? Don't do that, right? Stop. Jesus sternly charged him. The Greek word, according to scholars smarter than me, was originally taken from the idea that an angry horse would stomp its feet and get ready to charge and there would be like snorting coming from its nostrils or its nostrils would flare and it would be ready to go. It's almost a form of anger. That's the word that's used here. So Jesus is being very, very explicit. He's very clear and he's very to the point. This is a stern command. And he sent him away. The idea there, it's funny, it's it's the same word that we saw before for Jesus casting out a demon. He literally speaks sternly to this guy, throws him out at once, and he says to him, you kind of expect him to be like, go tell everybody what I've done for you. This is amazing. Let them know the kingdom of God has come because of what I've done because I'm all about healing people. And instead, look what he says. See that you say nothing to anyone. So how much? Nothing. Be silent. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he says, be silent, don't say anything, don't let word get out, keep this private. 
Show yourself to the priest. So in that day and age, the priests were government figures. They were kind of your division of public health. So if you were not healthy, if you'd been declared unclean, if you had some sort of weird sickness no one, what to, no one knew what to do with, you went to the priests. And they helped you. They tried to figure out what was going on. And they protected the general public from your infection. They're kind of the CDC of the, the day. And it was for them, essentially, to work as a doctor and say, hey, we're going to examine this guy. We're going to spend seven days with him. And on the eighth day, we're going to find out, is he really clean? And at the end of those eight, eight days, they would say, hey, dude, here's a, they'd literally do this. They would write a certificate of cleansing. A lot of the commentators said this is kind of in, in, interesting and unusual. They didn't write out a ton of stuff and give it to people, but apparently they would actually possibly write out a literal certificate that said, hey, this guy is deemed clean. CDC would put its stamp on it. Now you are free as of this point, because we believe you are clean after eight days of testing, after eight days of checking you out, you are free to reenter society. And that was the way the general population knew you were good. You can reenter the city. We don't have to kill you when you get, get, get close to us. You can come back home. So Jesus is saying, I'm still operating within that law, within that religious society. I want you to go to the priest they're going to declare you, you clean, and then you offer this uh, offering. Moses, in the book of Leviticus, had laid out the steps. What do you do if someone gets sick? What do you do if they have a skin disease? How do you know if it's a really dangerous one? How do you know if, you know, hey, he got sunburned, his skin's peeling? How do you know? So Moses had laid all this out. You're welcome to go read Leviticus 14 and 15 if you want to know more about it. But there it said, once you did that, once you were declared clean, you went and offered sacrifices. So essentially you'd take two doves, you'd kill one as a sign that you'd been healed, as a sign that all that uncleanness was taken away. And then you let the other one go as a sign that it it was free. And that was kind of the prescription. And then after that, once everything had kind of shaken out, everybody was good with you, you'd actually go offer three more lambs. Or if you were poor, there were other ways to to go around that. But the, the gist of it is this, there was a known process by which you were reintroduced into society. You had to get a, essentially the authority stamp as a way of saying, yes, you are good. And notice what Jesus says, go through this process. Don't say anything to anyone. Go through this process. Do everything that's required of you. I support what Moses said. I support the law. I'm behind this. It says for a proof to them. Proof of what? What were they trying to verify? What kind of proof? One, the healing was real. Jesus wanted it to be known by the authority figures that what he was doing wasn't happen chance. It wasn't just, hey, he did a little magic trick, but that this guy was actually bringing the power of God into the world and doing something supernatural, right? In the Old Testament, oftentimes leprosy was a sign to everybody else around that you had rebelled against God and essentially you were living in rebellion. So there's a couple times in the Old Testament when people go dramatically against something good that God has said and they end up getting leprosy. And so in New Testament times, that stigma of leprosy wasn't just you're a social outcast because you're sick, but also it might be a sign that God does not approve of you and you're living in rebellion against him. Not always certain, but there was some implication And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to go and be certified, not only that I healed you, and it's through me that the power is here, but you have been healed by God. 
God is speaking through me. And he's speaking through this system. He wants proof to be shown. Verse 45. So you kind of expect this guy, after having just been healed, after being able to see this authority that he's heard about brought to bear in his own life, right? This disease is crazy, horrific disease is gone. He's completely healed and he's declared clean. Go through the system. Yep, yep, yep. I, I can, you expect him to say, sure. And instead, verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely ab- about it and to spread the news. Just pause there. What does the guy do? <laughs> the exact opposite of what Jesus tells him. Jesus says, be quiet, go through this process, do it as a proof. And this guy goes out, and it's funny, the exact opposite words are, are used. He goes out, he begins to literally spread the news. The word there is, uh, Mark's making a joke, you can't see it in, without the Greek, but he literally goes out and he begins preaching. He begins proclaiming, hey, Jesus did this for me, this is amazing, I'm healed. And all of us are kind of scratching our heads thinking, wouldn't you think that's exactly what Jesus would want? Wouldn't you think Jesus would be on board with that? Wouldn't you think Jesus would be like, hey, bro, go tell everybody what I've done for you. And instead, he goes out and spreads the word. Notice the consequences of this guy not listening to Jesus. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. So, Thing to think about, Jesus does not care about being popular. He's not interested in everybody being a Jesus fan. He's not in, interested in people coming and say, oh, it's so cool. I, he's not interested in huge crowds for me. It's kind of funny because Mark is doing everything he can to dispel that popular notion that Jesus was all about crowds and ton, tons of people coming. Instead, it seems like Jesus actually doesn't want that. Notice what happens. Now, because of what this guy has said, Jesus cannot openly enter a town. Meaning he can't go inside of some of these towns he was going to preach in because so many people are flocking that it's disrupting his ministry. Because as Mark told us last week, Jesus isn't primarily here to heal, to cast out demons, and to make people clean. He's primarily here to proclaim that the kingdom of God is drawing near right now in him. And notice what it says, he is out in desolate places. Mark is an incredibly good author. So I want you to not miss what he's doing. If you read the New Testament and you can read these huge chunks and not see anything cool going on, let me encourage you, go back and read it again. If you read a section of scripture, you're not like, oh, that's amazing. It may be because you're missing something. And what it's easy to miss here is what has happened with Jesus and this leprous guy? And the answer Mark tells us in these two, two lines is they have been reversed. This guy is suddenly free to go into town. He's suddenly free to reenter society. He's suddenly free. He's clean. He is entering into the fullness of society. He is back. He is healthy. He is whole. He is completely restored. And notice what happens to Jesus. He can't enter towns. He's stuck out in desolate places. He has to have people come out to him. Get the reversal. Get what Mark's communicating. Mark is communicating this. What did the Messiah come to do? He came to proclaim the kingdom. How does he embody it? Is it simply by healing people and restoring? And the answer is yes, but it's more. Get what he's saying. What the Messiah came to do 
was to suffer that other people might be healed. When he touches this guy, it's not just him feeling emotional towards him and wanting to leave an emotional imprint. It is him beginning to take on the brokenness and the destruction and the consequences of the broken world. And here Mark wants us to know this is the result. Mark's giving us hints, can you see it, of what's to come. Mark's beginning to give us hints that what Jesus is actually here for is not going to look like a king who becomes a popular figure, who gets raised up, who everybody jumps on board with. He's not going to lead a revolution against the Romans. Instead, his kingship is going to be marked, yes, by healing and yes, by restoration. But get it, it comes at a cost. And if you know how the story plays out, that is part of Mark's point. The story begins to end when Jesus willingly goes to a cross and dies. And in suffering and dying, Mark makes it explicit and the whole New Testament and actually the Old Testament make it explicit. He's not dying for something he's done wrong. The whole trial's a sham. Instead, he is willingly taking on the evil and the brokenness of the world. Is that not incredible? What is God? Who is God? And Mark is saying, you have to come see this. This is who our Messiah is. Our Messiah doesn't sit at a distance and say, be clean from a distance. He draws up close to this leper and he reaches out and he touches him. And the leper has no idea what he's doing. And Jesus is in that moment taking on everything it means to be leprous. And you might say, well, he doesn't get leprosy and die. You're right. Instead, he dies horrifically at the hands of the Romans on a cross, tortured, crucified, that he might take the sins of the world and the evil and brokenness of the world on himself. Now, that's a weird view of God. It's very strange. It means that God is not some distant figure hidden at the end of the universe, unaware of suffering, unaware of struggles, unaware of cancer, unaware of leprosy, unaware of brokenness in marriage, unaware of divorce, unaware. Instead, Mark's trying to tell us, no, you don't understand. This is why this is good news. What if God drew near? What if God became so enmeshed in our physical world, that Jesus was literally God embodied. And what if God embodied did this kind of thing? What if in the midst of the struggles and the rejection and the outcastness, Jesus came and he took it on himself? What if the Christian God is that kind of God? That changes everything. We have to ask, what's going on here? Jesus turns everything over. And Mark is trying to say, this is the Christian God. This is the King of heaven. This is the Lord of creation. This is what true authority and rule and kingship look like. Not someone on high shouting down orders from heaven, hand over the smite button, just ready to smite. Instead, no, it's God coming down into the physical world, touching, embracing, loving, feeling deeply in our world, full experience, and then beginning to engage it. Mark wants to show us, one, 
This is who God is. This is God embodied. But get the other side of it. This is where it begins to hit home for us. If you understand that, then you have to know this is what he wants for the world. Jesus isn't simply God embodied. He's also the physical image of God. And if you know that terminology in your Old Testaments, in the Jewish scriptures, the image of God is humanity. What Jesus is telling us is that he is humanity restored. He is the image of God that it should be. He is everything a human being, you and I, ought to be. And what he's doing is as that humanity embodied, he is inviting us to live the same way. So I don't care if you are a follower of Jesus or you aren't. It doesn't matter if you're a skeptic, if you hate this, if you're just here and you don't know what's going on. Let me encourage you. Let me ask you, wouldn't it be amazing if that was embodied by everyone around you? Wouldn't it be amazing if each of us loved each other in that way, where when someone was sick, you didn't remain at a distance, but you drew near and you loved and you were physical Wouldn't it be amazing if in doing so, if everybody in our world loved in a way that's embodied and embraced sacrifice, can you imagine what that would do to a community where everyone loved that way? Jesus is coming and he's telling us, this is what restored humanity is. He is inaugurating the kingdom of God by saying, this is what the people of God look like. And I would guess there's not a person in this room, no matter where you are at spiritually, who would say, that's terrible. We'd all say, that's amazing. Can you imagine a community where people, even the most outcast, hideous, repulsive people, are loved in that way? That sounds an awful lot like heaven on earth. So what do we do with this? couple things to, to think about. God loves, embraces, and even reaches out and touches people who are outcasts and outsiders. It's kind of funny. If you study early church history, the really popular, like, powerful people did not actually get in on the Christian movement until later in the game. So who actually built up the early church? According to Paul talking in this book of Corinthians, he's like, all you guys were rejects. You were nothing. You were nobodies. Why are you acting all puffed up and proud now? Because he says, actually, where you came from, you were nobody. So here's good news for us today. If you're an outcast and a nobody, guess what? Join the crowd. If you are part of Jesus's church, everything you are saying by being here is, I was an outcast. I am an outcast who is brought in and touched and loved by God in precisely this way. Why? Because we have a God who loves people, broken people like us. He doesn't just do it at a distance. He draws near. I need you just to think and stop. We've said all of us would agree that's the way we want to be loved, and that's the way society should act. But here's the pivot point. We all know that's true, but we're all absolutely terrified of what it would cost if we did that. Because it's scary, right? If you watch Jesus's life, it doesn't go very well. Like he ends up dead. Most of us would say, well, that's a fail. Maybe. 
But the rest of the story is this. Without laying down your life and sacrificing and dying and touching and embracing that which is utterly, seems utterly foreign, you cannot see the power of God. So this is the gist of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means this. When you become a follower of Jesus and you embrace him by faith as the king of the universe, you follow his leadership as king. And his leadership as king looks like this. It looks like suffering and dying, embracing the lost, giving his life that other people might live. And for you to be a follower is to embrace the same thing. It absolutely, Mark's hinting at it here and talk about it more and more and more. For him, it spells out right here his death. And let me tell you something that's true for you. It'll be the same. It's not going to be different. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you're going to see two things. One is death. You are embracing the brokenness of the world around you, and you are taking it on yourself, right? As a parent, you already know this is true. If you have kids, you're like, oh, yeah, I live that every day, right? (laughs) This little thing is born completely dependent. All it does is scream and cry and make completely unhelpful but cute cooing sounds, right? My wife and I were watching videos of our our kids last night, and all these memories came flooding back. It's funny, you don't record the really bad ones. You only record the moments where they're kind of cute, and they're starting to talk, and they're starting to crawl, but it's the moments when they have the flu, right? And you're in the bathroom with them, and I don't need to be explicit, but it's disgusting, right? And yet, as a parent, you willingly... Sometimes, though, with a little bit of hesitation, you embrace that, right? You know that having a child means you're going to get disgusting and bad things are going to go and food is going to be flung and worse things might get on you. But because of love and because you can see what's coming, you embrace it. Do you have a vision of what's to come after death that enables you, like Jesus, to embrace it. Why can he embrace this guy? Why can he reach out and touch? Because he knows what's coming. And here we get a glimpse of what is to come in the future, which is the future restoration of all things. Jesus shows up and he gives us a hint. This is just a piece. This is just a tiny picture. I'm giving you a hint. This is what humanity looks like restored. This is what it will be like to dwell with God forever. Because there will come a day, according to Jesus, when all of us who are dead, most likely People, everybody in this room, you'll end up dead. And Jesus says, one day there will come a day when everyone will rise. And death will be no more. And tears will be wiped from every eye. And cancer will be gone. And people who've had strokes will be healed. And sin and wickedness and evil will be forever wiped out. And the world will be set aright. Sorry, get a little bit emotional because I want it so bad. Because I feel it and I see it every day. We see it in our families. We see it in our relatives. We see it in the people of Phoenixville. We see the brokenness. And Jesus tells us, enter in my people and embrace it like I do. Why? Because on the other side, there's resurrection. There can be no resurrection unless death is embraced. And in that dying, you've seen it. Life is given When that mother brings home that baby and begins to feed it, her life is poured out. Moms, it's not Mother's Day. Guess what? It's here a week early. We're celebrating. As you pour yourself out for your children, 
you give them life. It's amazing. So my wife had um, the great blessing of being able to breastfeed our kids. And it was an enigma to me because I'm like, I just don't get this. This is so weird to me. I, I just don't get it. And she loved it, and I couldn't figure out why. And we've had now many conversations. She said, there's something absolutely amazing about pouring yourself out and becoming exhausted and nutrient deficient. And it's crazy. When you breastfeed, the best parts of you are fed into this helpless infant. And they are made strong. And your body is depleted. My wife literally had physical injuries happen to her body because... This child needed life. And as she poured herself into this baby, they begin to grow up. So here's the deal. As people, when we imitate Jesus and lay down our lives, it is costly, but get it, it is worth it. And we don't always see it. It's not immediate. The disciples had to wait a full day thinking, oh man, we did everything wrong. We followed the wrong guy. This is a screw up. He died on the cross. We thought he was the one. Oh, he's a false Messiah. Oh my gosh, what were we thinking? And then he was raised from the dead. For some of us, that, that gap is a lot longer. Let me encourage you. Jesus has sworn by himself in new covenant, which we are about to celebrate, that there is life in following him. That resurrection does follow sacrifice and death. And that as you pour yourself out for other people, they are given new life. And Jesus says, I gave my life for you that you might know for certain that I'm coming back. I'm going to raise you from the dead. And I'm going to set creation once and for all right. (laughs) Things will be as they ought to be. Now, For us right now, we're getting ready to celebrate something called communion or the Lord's Supper. So, ushers, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to come come down. Let me do a little bit of explanation. I'm going to pray for it, and I'm going to read something. But what are we doing? It's kind of a weird deal, right? Like, I am big on feasts and food, and this is a terrible feast, right? Because it's like a tiny little cracker. Anybody who's hungry is going to leave here still hungry and kind of maybe even hangry now because you had a little taste. So what's going on? This is a symbol of what is to come. It is a very material, real, physical symbol of what Jesus is doing. Jesus didn't just come to restore you spiritually, internally, and do something nice for your heart. He came to set the world right. And he gave us something, a physical representation, a material representation, a consumable so that you might experience it in a physical way, a tangible reminder that he is for you and he is bringing you, calling you, come to the table. It's actually an invitation, not just for this morning, but he is inviting everyone, come, I'm gonna set the world right. And when I do, you're invited to come and sit at my table and we will feast in a material world with real wine and well, maybe, who knows, maybe grape juice for some of you, who knows? It's gonna be a real feast. And today, this is a foretaste. So if you are a follower of Christ, it is an act of faith for you to walk down the sides, come to here, grab a cracker, dip it in juice, and take it. It's a way of you saying, yes, I'm following that guy. He is my life. When I consume him, I get life. 
And if you say, well, I'm not yet there. I'm, I'm still thinking about this stuff. Let me encourage you. This is still for you. The invitation is out there for you to not come up right now, but instead to think, this is a time for me to go and say, is this really true? And not only is it true, if it is true, which it is, do I have the willpower to resist that kind of God and that kind of love. So if you're not the place where you say, yep, I'm a follower of Jesus, stay where you are, think about it, pray through it. But no, this is also for you. It's an invitation to come to the Father. So let me pray and then I'm gonna read and we will, um, we will jump into communion. Father God, we could come with joy this morning because it's true. We get a foretaste of it. We saw the foretaste when you raised your son from the dead that you're going to set everything right. We love the fact that when you came, you didn't come and destroy sinners like us. You didn't reject outcasts like this guy. You drew them in and you didn't just draw them in from a distance. You reached out and you touched us. And so, Father, we want to say thank you. Thank you, Father. That's us. That's me. I need you. We need you. And so, Lord, we come to enjoy you. We come to rejoice in the fact that our sins are forgiven. You exchange your life for ours so that we might know for certain that we are invited in. In Jesus' name, amen.